I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to a Saturday, June 3rd, 2023 edition here on the Chase Thomas Podcast. Chase Thomas Podcast Network, where we got all kinds of different shows each and every day here on this very feed. Um, on today's show, we got Go Vols 247's Ryan Callahan uh, talk uh, Tennessee recruiting. What's new there? Uh, the 865 Live weekend last weekend, where Tennessee moved the needle a little bit on some big names. So we uh, we hit on that uh, for a little bit. We also talked about uh, Mike Matthews getting um, potentially a crystal ball sooner rather than later. Uh, if the balls are going to be able to keep uh, J.J. Harrell, Amir Jackson coming in, who the Tennessee big tight end recruit will end up being. Um, we talked about uh, uh, Fountain, Franklin, uh, Winery, and just what Rodney Gardner is doing and the defensive line front uh, here in recruiting. Melo Jones, is he still an option? And then... Bryant Wesco, could he actually be uh, still a serious real target here uh, out of Texas, the five-star wideout uh, for Tennessee in this class too? So if you're uh, excited about this Tennessee offense going forward, you're going to want to hear what Ryan and I talk about with who might be entering the fold here to partner with uh, Nico Iamaliava and Nathan Leacock and company going forward. So all that more with Ryan Callahan, Go Balls 2 verse 7 coming up in just one second. We also got uh, Fangraph's John Taylor. Oh, yeah. Major League Baseball uh, talking all things. You guessed it. Major League Baseball. We talked about um, uh, the Cubs and how they're suddenly one of the worst teams in the NL. How did that happen? Uh, rule changes that have shown that they've worked this year. Um, pitch clock has definitely been a resounding success to this point. So John and I talk about that we talk about uh the twins and the al central the diamondbacks and why they're probably a playoff team a uh, big series this weekend obviously with the braves um that began last night with a d-backs win so not great there but uh just all kinds of fun insight into a variety of teams here uh as we talk about all things major league baseball each and every week on this very show if you'd like to uh ask us a major league baseball question uh, for next week's show and you want us to answer it then feel free to do so at chase thomas podcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at pod chase thomas 
As always, folks, if you are a, already a subscriber, first, thank you for returning for today's show. Uh, if you could and you have not already done so, please take a second, hit that pause button on your preferred podcast player and leave this show a star rating and a review. Helps other people find the show and it helps this very show continue to grow and find new uh, new listeners. So please go ahead and do that today. If you're new, hey, welcome and thank you for checking out this very program. Hope you stick around for future ones and the best way to do that is hit that subscribe button on your preferred podcast player and you'll never miss an episode here uh, on this very feed. I'm the Sports Renaissance Man. Cover it all. A little bit of everything. Um, a lot of Tennessee too if you're a Tennessee guy. So um, all that and more coming up on today's show. Check us out at YouTube. YouTube.com slash Chase Thomas Podcast. Like and subscribe if you'd like to watch this very program. All right. I think that's it. Uh, Uncle Darren, let's go. Chase Thomas Podcast. The Chase Thomas Podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right. Joining me now here on the Chase Thomas Podcast, old friend. And by old, I mean like a month and a half uh, when I met him in person <laughs> at SportsSource. Um, Ryan Callahan of Go Vols 247. Ryan, how are you? Doing well. Hope, hope you are as well. And you know what? Month and a half, year and a half, 15 years. It's all a long time, right? <laughs> I know. It's like, when do you become an old friend? Like what, what age do you yeah. just, uh, you're like, this is my old friend blank or like we go back. Like what does go back? When is it officially go back season? Is it five years? 10? Yeah. I mean, normally you would think so, but it's all yeah. relative, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's a whirlwind time for you and going into the summer with uh, a bunch of folks. It seems like this is commitment season over the next month or so um, with a lot of guys now being locked in by the time high school football season rolls around. So I imagine uh, you are going to uh, you're going to be on your phone uh, a lot this summer. But I imagine also you were on your phone a lot last weekend at 865 Live which is what Tennessee is calling uh, the Memorial Day event this year. I'm excited to see what it is going to be next year as they continue to uh, navigate and come up with new marketing ideas for what they're going to call this thing. I just think, I I don't know if there is a good name. Do you have a good name for it if you had to rebrand it? I don't. I I thought 865 Live was an improvement from the previous one, Rocky Tapalooza. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I I think it's a step in the right direction. That that could stick. You know, you don't want to try too hard and, and... you know, redo it every single year, but, uh, but yeah, you want to get it right at the same time. So I think that one at least went over, went over better and seems kind of seemed like more of a modern name, I guess, than, uh, than Rocky Tapalooza, but Hey, we'll see if they come up with something different next year. Absolutely. Um, are you ready to put in a crystal ball for Mike Matthews to Tennessee? I, I'm not, uh, okay. that's, that's, that's why I, I haven't just yet, but I do think Tennessee is probably the, uh, at least the slight favorite there going into his official visits. Um, I, I think there are some heavy hitters in that one, just to the point that you can't rule out things changing and, and, you know, Alabama will get an official visit. It looks like Georgia's still at least on the periphery there, uh, still, still looming. Although I, I think right now there's a better chance of him leaving the state, mm-hmm. uh, and the, the kind of the main teams we've heard the most about in recent months, probably Tennessee, USC and Clemson. So, you know, we'll see what surfaces over the next few weeks. He's still got that Tennessee official visit uh, coming up uh, closer to the end of the month, the weekend of June 23rd. So uh, I think Tennessee's in pretty good shape there, but you seldom get a five-star without a, without a serious fight. He's a, he's a big-time talent, a two-way talent for that matter. Some people think he could be a safety, but he's made it pretty clear he wants to, to play wide receiver, and that's one of the things working in Tennessee's favor. So I think they've done a great job with him so far. He clearly has a, a, a good comfort level with Tennessee, 
if if I was making a pick today, just based on where things stand, I would pick Tennessee, but not not quite ready to crystal ball him just because you don't know what might come of the next few weeks. I kind of cautioned some people recently. Remember where Cardinal Tate looked like he was, uh, you know, around this time of last year, and and Francis Mauingoa was trending toward Tennessee at one point and, and trended away. And some in some ways, the race is just beginning for some of these guys going down the home stretch. So we'll see where things are in the next couple of weeks. But yes, Tennessee in good shape now, just not quite ready to make that pick. I'm doing what I can. He went to my high school uh, back in Parview. They have the orange checkerboard in the end zone already. Like there, it's a natural progression for him. Like it's a natural, and they were really in on another um, in the Pruitt era. There was a running back. Uh, was it Chase Brown? Do you know Cody, who? Cody Brown? He, Cody he, Brown. Yeah, he signed with them and just didn't yeah. make campus after the the coaching change. Yeah. Probably, um, probably well, there's a- the it was more of a probably better scheme fit in, in Pruitt's old system and. You know, they yeah. didn't work out at what Miami, I think he ended I was gonna up. say, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's good. Like you said, it's just you want to be in these conversations, right? Like this is a good spot to be in. You're not gonna land Wingo, Harold, uh, Matthews, and uh even Kay McKellar, whoever. But like I do wonder, now that uh JJ Harold took off all mention of Tennessee on his uh social media and stuff, and I it's so weird. This is such a weird industry now because you're just like, do we read into that? Is it just like to get, just drive up interest, drive up NIL value because more people are clicking on his page to see like, what's he going to do? Is he souring on Tennessee? But in your estimation, when you look at Tennessee reportedly wanting to take four receivers, if Mike Matthews jumps in the boat because it seems like he's going to be a July commitment, right? And if Tennessee gets him at the end of June, which is very good that you're getting him right before he's thinking about um, potentially locking in where he's going to go. Like, how much does that change Harrell uh, in his potential of landing in Tennessee? If Matthews falls, does that change anything for, especially Matthews Wingo, maybe, or Matthews Amari? Does that mean Harrell's probably out, or are they comfortable being able to land all of those guys? I, I don't think it would change anything, uh, certainly not mm-hmm. from Tennessee's standpoint. You know, like you said, they're they're probably trying to sign four in this class if they can get four they like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, from his perspective, I don't. I don't know that JJ Harrell's likely to be spooked by a five-star receiver committing to Tennessee if it gets to that point. So, mm-hmm. you know, we'll we'll see. He's a confident kid. I think he thinks he's a big-time talent for for that matter. And that's that. You know, he's still being pursued by other schools. Uh, you know, my sense this spring talking with him is he, he he's just wanted to continue to get recruited and 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 look around and make sure he's making the right decision because he did commit pretty early just as his recruitment was kind of heating up mm. uh, old miss is just down the road and, and has come into the uh, picture a little bit more there there's a, at least a quiet confidence with old miss that they might be able to flip him in the end but you never know we've seen those situations play out uh differently for other kids so it, it's possible tennessee could hold on to him you, you just don't know and and i you know right now it feels more like a toss-up than it, than it did probably a few weeks ago but it's still Still a situation where Tennessee would love to hold on to J.J. Harrell, and they're certainly not going to you know, be willing to just say, yeah, you know, if he wants to go somewhere else now, let him go because we got Mike Matthews. Now they, they want to hold on to him and get some of those guys to go with him. If you were a betting man, and I'm not, I don't know if you are, Ryan, but when you think about two of four, like, do you th- feel pretty good that Tennessee should land two of Amari Jefferson, Mike Matthews, Ryan Wingo, and J.J. Harrell? I, I think so. I, I think that's a pretty uh, reasonably safe bet right now. Mm. Um, you know, I've, obviously, like we just said, a lot of things are going to happen in the coming weeks. Ryan Wingo, you know, uh, kind of adding a variable to to the equation we mentioned a second ago. He's probably going to wait until December uh, to make a decision. He's he's probably going to go the distance and uh, has told me he might even announce on early signing day. So that one's not going to play out anytime wow. soon. 
Um, Mike Matthews, for that matter, hasn't even set an announcement date or anything like that. He, you know, July is kind of what we've heard as yeah. a possibility so far, but that could be August easily. I don't think it goes into the season, but I think he wants to to go ahead and get it out of the way, you know, by the end of the summer. But he hasn't ruled out anything at this point. He's just kind of said whenever whenever the time is right. So um, so that one's still open. Uh, and Amari Jefferson probably waits till you know August September, but uh, at least a couple of those guys working towards summer decisions. Yeah, I, I think Tennessee probably ends up with at least two of those four. And there, there's a there's a very real chance they get more than two of those guys. Mm. It's just it's just you obviously have to to win some battles uh, this summer, and you've got some major competition even for Amari Jefferson. It's it's funny, you know, he's the in-state guy, but he he may be as tough a pull as any of those guys with Georgia and Alabama swinging pretty hard at him. So I, I still give Tennessee a real chance of landing him in the end because he is in-state and because he's so important to them. Um, so I would. I would maybe give Tennessee the slightest of edges in that one, but that's even projecting a little bit. So they're going to have big fights on their hands for all three of those guys. Um, But yeah, I think they get at least a couple of them in the end, if I had to guess right now. Do you think Amir Jackson took it personally at all uh, that like Jane Riddell was the the primary target for so long and Tennessee was obviously zoned in and then he comes in for 865 Live and it seems like he's he made it a point. I think it was you I heard on the like the background of uh, the video with him in, in that media scrum where he's uh he, he's definitely not all locked in on florida right like everyone's just kind of assumed that he would end up in florida south georgia kid um near the line and um i don't know like is it weird like you've been covering recruiting for a long time ryan like when because these guys know like i'm sure amir knows that like jane riddell has been like the target and it was down to georgia and tennessee do they care about that or do they ultimately like no i get it like he was a he's a big target and um i'm next in line to just see if i can uh, uh if you can get me in the boat do you how, how does is that not awkward at all um i don't think so and i and i don't know that he was to the point that he was really looking into it all that much with hmm. with all the schools he was considering tennessee wasn't you know just running second for him the whole time i don't think yeah. he was, i think because he hadn't been to campus before i think the visit last weekend kind of put them on his radar a little bit more than they were before hmm. um but he had been up once before, but it was just for an AAU basketball tournament. He actually played on Jordan McRae's team in South hmm. Georgia and, and had come up to Knoxville before with that team, but but otherwise had not visited Tennessee. So I think that visit put them on the radar more. Now he was at he was also at Miami this week, um, actually just yesterday for a for a camp and and workout and visit. Uh, spending a couple days there. Their sense seems to be that it's Florida and Miami at the top of his list right now. Florida's hmm. obviously made him a priority for for as long as anybody so far. Um, I think at Georgia, to, to your point, similar situation. They obviously landed Jaden Riddell. He was kind of maybe the backup plan there too, or one of the backup plans at tight end if that had gone elsewhere. So I think you kind of know that's part of the deal, and, and I'm not sure he's far enough along that he was looking at that just yet because he's looking at probably a September, October, maybe even later decision uh, as of right now. But it sounds like Florida and Miami both are somewhat optimistic about their chances. Florida obviously feels the best about him right now, but Tennessee – talking about getting an official visit from him in the fall. We'll, we'll see where things go with that. But he's obviously one of the guys we're tracking the most right now at, at tight end. It's just fairly new with Tennessee because he hadn't visited until last weekend. Does your sense tell you, like, with LeBlanc now gone, Riddell now gone, Amir trending potentially towards Georgia, Florida, or is Tennessee kind of running out of options here at tight end? I, I wouldn't say they're running out of options. No, they, they've okay. done a good job of casting a wide net. I think knowing that – First of all, you've got Jonathan Eccles that you've got to keep recruiting. Yeah. He's visiting Florida this weekend and, and USF uh, later in the month where he obviously knows Alex Golish and some of the guys on that staff pretty well. I, I don't think he ends up there, but he's still taking that visit. Um, so 
you got to keep recruiting him. And so because of that, they've they've cast a pretty wide net at that position. Ja'Cory Witted out of Alabama is another guy they've recruited some. Uh, Dylan Hip has been from uh, on campus a couple times out of Arizona. You know, not not going all in on him, but they've they've kept him uh, in the picture enough that if they needed to go further down the board, they could. And uh, and the other guy that hasn't been to campus yet, but Roger uh, Saliapaga, I believe is how you pronounce that name, but I, I've yet to confirm that with him. But he is uh, hmm. he's scheduled to be in later next week uh, for his first visit to Tennessee. So uh, so Tennessee in the picture with him, and I think certainly has a real chance of getting an official visit there. So they've got enough irons in the fire that I think they're okay right now. But yeah, it's always or often tricky to try to get two tight ends in the same class. And I think we're kind of we're kind of seeing that, especially when you go up uh, against a, you know programs like Georgia that has such a good track record with tight ends that I think that was just tough to beat out in the end for, for Jaden Riddell, even though Tennessee did a great job with them uh, just to win those battles against programs like that that have you know established NFL track records with, with guys at that position. That, that can be tough sometimes. Quickly here, uh, Williams, Winery, uh, Cam Franklin and uh, or is it Cam Franklin and uh, Fountain and Franklin? I get mixed up with their first names. Yeah, Kamarion Franklin and, and Cameron Fountain. Okay, because they both could be Cam. All right, that's what like and I'm like okay. Do you think all three end up at UT based on where things are headed right now? Well, that's that's another one similar to the wide receiver position where you could see it. It's definitely mm-hmm. possible, but to project it is assuming probably a lot. When Nary probably is going to wait until September to make a decision. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, official visit to Oregon set for September. And there's just some uh, some other heavy hitters in that one. Georgia trying to get back in it. Uh, Oklahoma's been a factor from the start. Even Missouri, the home state school, at one point earlier this year, we thought he might be leaning toward them. That's that's kind of faded a little bit, but they're still in the picture. All those teams are going to be fighting tooth and nail for him. He's the number two player in the country uh, mm. in 24 sports rankings. So that, that one, I'm not ready to call that one just yet. I just think Tennessee's in probably – probably in the driver's seat right now, but not by a huge margin. And the official visits obviously could change that one quite a bit. Um, but I do think Tennessee's in pretty good shape with Kamari on Franklin right now. That one, uh, I think Tennessee's been right up there at the top of his list for a while. Uh, I think Cameron Fountain, they're, they're probably the team to be at the moment. So again, still some official visits, some things that could shake out differently in the next few weeks. But it's one of those positions where it looks like Tennessee's in good shape to, to have a great chance of getting at least a couple of those guys, landing all three, just knowing the history at that position might be tough considering the competition there but it's it's absolutely possible you can't rule that out big name player that is not currently favored on 247 to the vols that you think very well could end up at ut when it's all said and done right now Mm. man that's a tough one because most of them we we discussed a good bit that (laughs) they could end up (laughs) could it be mellow jones uh possibly that's that's definitely a long play that tennessee is is I think very much on his mind, at least, that you can't rule that one out, even though mm-hmm. at the end of the day it's a home state kid committed to Georgia. Uh, Tennessee's done a good job there. So that's that's not a bad candidate uh, that, that you know someone maybe they could flip down the road, especially mm-hmm. the way Georgia recruits. Maybe they get tired of him taking visits at some point. You know, you never know with, with someone like that. So that's that's maybe a possibility. Um, I, I'll I'll throw one out there just because he hasn't been on campus yet. This is probably more of a more of a long shot. Mm. Uh, but, but Bryant Wesco, the wide receiver mm. out of Texas, just a, just another name to throw out there because they are scheduled to get an official visit later this month. Now LSU, Texas, TCU, some other some other programs closer to home are heavily involved there. His sister just uh, transferred from Oklahoma, but he's been to Oklahoma a bunch because mm. of that. So his soccer uh, and, and played there. So he's going back to Oklahoma later this summer, apparently. So a lot of teams in the mix there, but I think Tennessee's passing game intriguing to him. 
if that first visit goes well later this month, maybe that one is one that we haven't talked about enough that could become a more realistic option than maybe people are thinking right now. So I'll, I'll throw that one out there, but it's kind of a wild card since he's never been to campus yet. I like it. I like it. Ryan, this has been great. As always, I love talking recruiting with you here. We can go check you out on GoVols247.com. Go subscribe to 247 Sports today if you have not already done so. It's like it's, it's a good time today, but it's also a good time in general. Uh, Ryan and the folks over there make me smarter because I can talk about it. Like, oh, I, I know what's going on. I know what's going on with Tennessee recruiting right now, at least a little bit. So that's fun. Um, Ryan, thank you. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Chase. Thanks, as always. All right, hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast, where I'm still the aforementioned Chase Thomas coming to you live from Knoxville, Tennessee, Everything School HQ, where yet another Tennessee volunteer made his Major League Baseball debut this week with uh, my young son, my young adult son, Ben Joyce, uh, striking out fools with his 102-mile-per-hour slider, lighting the Major League Baseball world on uh, Twitter world on fire, just as I knew. Uh, he would as a nice prelude to Drew Gilbert doing the same come postseason time for the Astros later this year. John Taylor up there in New York City. Fangraph Zone is here. John, good yes. evening, sir. How are you? I am doing well. How about yourself? Not too bad. Did you watch the, the Ben Joyce nastiness? Uh, I saw a couple clips online. Looked pretty good. I mean, he, the dude comes out throwing 102, so sheesh. Um... I worry for him, obviously, as an Angels pitcher that you know mm-hmm. this, this cannot possibly last. Or, <laughs> when I say this, I don't even mean like good results. I mean any results. Like his arm is is just due to come flying off his body within a week or so. I think. Like, I, I'm curious. Is there any team aside from the Rockies you would have been more upset about him ending up on, just in terms of oh god, this guy's career is already over? Oh, the Mets. Okay, that makes I yeah that that's that's a hard one to let go of. The Mets is just, I just, I can't shake it where you just assume any kind of great pitching prospect is going to get injured. It's yeah, just, that, that seems fair. Blade Tidwell actually went in the, what, first round uh, to the Mets? Another Tennessee pitcher. So we'll see okay. if my guy Blade can make it through. Wait, um, his name is Blade? His name is Blade. Like like the Marvel superhero vampire hunter Blade? Like a knife yeah. Blade? But think Southern Blade. Like there's that cool Blade and then there's like, Southern Blade. Like Sling Blade? No, just like Blade is in like, oh. it's hard to explain if you're not from the South, but like there are certain names where you're like, you just hear it and you're like, oh, that's like a backup quarterback in well, Montgomery, I mean, sure. Alabama. There, look, I mean, there's a guy, there's a Red Sox prospect named Blaze Jordan who's from yeah. Mississippi. So like, I, I get it. Like, yeah, it does feel like if you are a sports oriented family in the South, you have mm. to give at least one kid a name like, like Chase, for instance. Or, or like, I think more even like Cash, Sheriff, uh, Ruger, mm-hmm. um, just straight up like Flame, like something just real, like a, a just a very kind of like colorful noun of some mm-hmm. sort. I it's I, I see, see this a lot. I feel like in the Little League World Series, yes, when the Southern teams uh, make their debuts, mm-hmm. and you you get a billion kids named like again like cash and and lex yeah and like hazelnut (laughs) but Mm -hmm. um alfalfa spanky (laughs) the rest of the little rascals sparky yeah yeah but i i had never heard blade 
used as a proper first name. That that's a new one for me. Blade. You know it's funny you bring up Cash. Like that's actually my number one if I have a boy in the future. You want to name like, him Cash? Yeah, I would go Cash. Okay. Because then the nice thing is, is when he's a small child, you can refer to him as 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 spare change. <laughs> as he gets older, you know, he goes from penny to nickel to dime to quarter <laughs> to full on dollar bill. <laughs> That's a ten out of ten dad joke. That would drive I was gonna say, like, that's, that's why so you gotta mad. do it. That's why you gotta do it to the kid too. You gotta make them understand early on that this is what it's all about. Is that this name is more about the jokes than anything mm-hmm. else? Yeah, if I'm gonna be taking care of you and I'm gonna be responsible for your well-being for at least eighteen years, then I better get some sort of bits off. Absolutely. Yeah. John Taylor, take yes. graphs. Your take of the week. I'm very curious to see where you go. Are you going to combine one of our topics here, or do you have your own take? Because uh, it was pretty spicy last week. The the Rays fans were in the mentions, not happy about uh, like, hey, don't don't worry about the Tampa Bay Rays. We're fine, guys. Like, I'm always, we're not. I'm we're- always going to worry about the Tampa Bay Rays because until they actually do the damn thing, like mm. th- that's kind of the thing. It's like you worry about the Rays because all of this is. Sh- it's essentially our generation's uh, Moneyball A's and that it all works in the regular season and then doesn't work in the postseason, which is maybe not fair entirely. I mean, the Rays did make it to the World Series in 2020 and have mm. been a, a you know, very solid contender throughout. But maybe worry about the Rays isn't the best way to put it. But it's, I, I think, and like I said, it's, you know, do you trust the Rays to make the moves necessary to go from contender to, you know, that kind of next step of like, oh, like, you know, legit World Series contender, which is not to say they're not a legit World Series contender right now, just that I think better said when when we get to the dead, if we get past the deadline and the Rays have done functionally nothing to add to a bullpen that still remains very bad, or at least that is bad for the time being, that should probably be a big warning sign that, you know, that the Rays maybe are not the team of destiny for this season. Um, I have one bullpen roll request for the Rays, though. What, okay. Whatever they do this summer. Uh, don't trade for Anthony Bass. That would yeah. be great. More don't like do an- that. More like Anthony Ass. Because <laughs> he sucks. Um, yeah, what a what a chode. This whole Pride Night uh, backlash, you know, first from the Dodgers disinviting the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence group, and then from... I, I know Bass isn't he's only tangentially related because he's on some whole other thing that just so happens to line up very neatly with this because you know all homophobia transphobia and bigotry just you know ends up coming from the same rancid pool but you know between that and Trevor Williams is just kind of insulting and I I think the difference is Bass is one of those dudes who just seems very happy to be open and clear about his prejudices and how he just straight up does not like or care for uh, people of different orientations gender sexual whatever you want to you know whatever uh whatever it is he he went on uh rant about i didn't actually read the specifics i just i don't need that in my life yeah um williams's was more of the kind of like the nice sounding like it's fine that you do this but maybe we can agree that there shouldn't be no man just like you're, you're either for you're either for uh better said you're either you either support uh gay people trans people you know the whole, the whole spectrum, or you don't. And there's no real middle ground to be found here. You know, I don't really like the whole thing. As a Catholic, I think we can do this without making fun of Catholics. Who really? Really, Catholics are persecuted. Catholics, there there are like 50 billion of us. Like I'm mm. like, there's never been a point in my life where, as a Catholic, albeit a, a mostly lapsed Catholic, but still, where I have felt any sense. This is not 1955. You know, mm. where they're like. 
you know, where there's never been a Catholic president or something. You know, we have literally a Catholic president right now. Like, Christians, Catholic, Catholics and Christians in general have never been oppressed. Or not, I shouldn't say never, but have not in the last, ooh, roughly millennia of, of existence been oppressed. They have mm. been top of the societal food chain in every Western country, and in most of the others, too, for pretty much the last thousand years going. Like, this is, it, it's so silly to me that this is even... Just just keep your mouth shut if you're these guys. You gain nothing from saying anything. Just make yourself look like even Kershaw pushing the, you know, I want to make sure that we get promotion for prior, for Christian night because, it's, you know, we want to make sure that this is important. But shut the hell up, man. Just shut the hell up. You are not a marginalized, persecuted group. Like, you just, you do not need that same level of institutional support. Like, the reason these Pride Nights are so important in a sense, and I understand the whole... Uh, question and idea of you know how you know how far rainbow capitalism really gets us in a sense but these nights exist to make people feel not just welcome but also protected you know like there like there is a safe space for them to be like a baseball game can be a safe space for a gay or lesbian or trans or non-binary or uh you know again on on along down the spectrum for everyone you know, and that, which is the whole idea behind those. Baseball is supposed to be safe and fun for everyone. It's not just supposed to be, oh, us Christians give the gays a night, and then but we have to have our night too. It's like, no, it's it's not supposed to work this way. And when you protest that fact, you just come off looking like more than anything, just a big old asshole. You know that, and that's I don't know what the what takeaway there is from like the Anthony Bass stuff in particular. Other than that, the guy's just an asshole. You know, the, the, it's just clear, it's clear as day when you support that kind of stuff. When you're saying the kind of things he's saying, you're just an asshole. You know, you, you are just straight-up prejudiced against another person because they have a different sexual orientation or gender than you do. That makes you an asshole. You know, that, that that's, not, that's not something where it's like, oh, but the Bible says... Shut the fuck up about that. It is it is literally just your prejudice coming to the forefront and you looking for a nice way to dress it up. And that's just... It's just been so upsetting to see that stuff and to be reminded how many baseball players... Um, because, you know, this is not... You know, the, I don't think these, these guys are, uh, uh, you know, bass and... Maybe I, I won't lump Trevor Williams in with Bass so much, but like these are not us. This is not a small chunk of the baseball player. But like I, this is a very much a silent majority thing. Where it's it really is disheartening to feel like a lot of professional baseball players are just bigots when it comes to gay people and transgender people. Like they are just straight up just they hate them, or at the very least they dislike them strongly. And that is really something where it'd be it'd be nice to see too. Major League Baseball itself, you know, not just the teams, but also Major League Baseball step up and say, no, this is not how we are as a league. This is not how we are going forward. Like, this kind of shit has no place in this league. You know, this is a welcoming... And again, rainbow capitalism, I get it. MLB will do whatever makes it look best in order to make the most money. But again, it, this, is, this, feels, this feels like a pretty easy stance to take, you know? I understand why the league probably wouldn't. I mean, it's very easy to see the usual insane right-wing outrage machine directed at stuff like Bud Light and Target, which just makes my head want to explode. I, I never thought we'd get to a day where Bud Light was being, like, boycotted by, by like, red, like you know, deep red conservative Americans. That just feels insane to me. You know, I can understand, like, neither the teams, and this is why the Dodgers did their Pride Night, uh, you know, uh, you know, why they changed their mind on that in the first place. Um, you know, teams don't want to deal with this with this stuff. The league doesn't want to deal with this stuff. They don't need the the right wing outrage machine coming for them. But when it comes to something like standing up for fellow human beings who are persecuted and targeted, and they're you know who where whole ass states and politicians are trying to essentially legislate them out of effectively being in public life, 
this is a time for for the guys who are supportive and for the the elements within the league that are supportive to stand up and say no anthony bass does not represent this you know the the you know the the Dodgers flip flopping does not represent this. You know there is you know th- this is important and there needs to be some kind of stand taken. And I hope there is eventually, as you know, as exhausting as this discourse always is, um, there is a real opportunity for MLB to come out and say something in support. You know, instead of just kind of waffling on the sidelines with something like you know we at MLB are believe that everyone is special or, or some nonsense like that. No, just come out in support of the people who are marginalized and persecuted. And that's not the Christians here. Nicely put. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry about your new, uh, how that's going to jibe with your new uh, sponsor, the Southern Baptist Church, but... I don't think they're going to be a presenting sponsor uh, okay. on this very program, John. Um, but not really a concern of mine at the at the present day. Not really a concern, sir. Okay. Well, that's, that's, um, that's good. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, I know that you were, I know you were in talks with the 700 Club <laughs> too, so... Is that still on the air? Does that... I just remember it used to be on ABC Family. I don't think ABC Family exists anymore. No, that's that's Freeform now. Yeah, so I don't know if it's on Freeform, maybe, but if not, I don't know. All right, well, somewhere out there, Pat Buchanan is rotting in hell. (laughs) Is he alive, dead? uh, You know what? It's it's isn't it Pat Robertson? Pat Robertson, Pat Buchanan, but they both should rot in hell. I was gonna say Pat Buchanan. Actually, we're really we're really starting this on a. (laughs) Wow, Pat Buchanan is alive. Uh, Pat. Uh, Robertson. Yeah, Pat Robertson it, is definitely dead. That man was like a thousand years old. Nope, still alive. Ninety-three. How? Yeah, man. Between him and Henry Kissinger, like I'm starting to think that there is like the universe really just is kind of amoral. On the other hand, sometimes Jimmy I Carter's think, ninety-eight now. Yeah, Jimmy Carter's been in hospice care for three months and is still alive. I I'm not really grasping what's going on with Jimmy Carter unless the treatment is making him stronger somehow. The man has been diagnosed with everything over the last 25 yeah, plus every, years. Every photo of him, like every photo where he's you know continually doing the Houses for Humanity stuff, he looks at least 250 years old. You I, know, you you look at him and you're like, wow, I didn't realize Jimmy Carter signed the Declaration of Independence. That's really cool. Like, it's just so like. Just living his life in planes. That's the key, man. Maybe to make it to 98, just doing your own thing, hiding out, staying active, doing nice things for other people. Work, uh, I mean, working off a lifetime. Look, being president for four years is about a lifetime's worth of sin for most people. So he's yeah. just kind of paying that off. At least with, with when it comes to Kissinger and Robertson, I've, I've kind of just come to the belief that being alive for that long is a curse unto itself because the human body really should not exist past like 85 years old too mm-hmm. many things just start going wrong and don't function anymore so maybe i'll take some solace in that you know pat robertson may still be alive but the act of taking a piss is probably so exhausting and terrible for him that it all kind of evens out in the end which naturally leads us back to take graphs major league baseball take of my the week, take John is Taylor. that no one should be alive past 85 <laughs> like the john hot takes in the last six minutes have been top-notch just yeah you're I, i'm not looking forward to your youtube comment section on this one uh yeah but it's but okay my my baseball take beyond yeah. you know support queer and and persecuted folks mlb bunch of dipshits is that uh, to praise mlb on the other hand the rule changes have worked the rule changes have really hmm. worked we're, we're a month into the season and this is something i'm I'm, ba- I'm going i'm following off of something ben clemens wrote for Fangraphs on tuesday uh, looking at how the new rules have changed the game. And for the most part, it's a mixed bag, um, mm. especially with regards to, I think, the defensive shift and positioning stuff. 
hasn't really changed anything. As Ben notes, um, batting average on balls in play when it comes to uh, particular types of hit. I, I know that in particular, there was a lot of talk that, oh, with the shift ban, now lefties will be able to get balls to the right side of the infield. It hasn't really changed all that much. You know, there's still... It's still pretty easy to set up a defensive shift with that is not necessarily a shift that still does the the trick. Ben pointed out that the main one that is probably here to stay that it more is maybe I imagine impossible to legislate out of the game is having a shortstop stand essentially directly behind second base to get rid of grounders up the middle, which he makes a point. You know, for as long as and I, you know this is a case for you and I as well. Like for as long as there's been baseball, a grounder, a hard grounder up the middle has 99 times out of 100 turned into a hit. It's really only in the last 10 or so years with shifts and defensive positioning taking up a huge uh, new part of baseball that, that that's more or less disappeared from the game. And that remains the case even with the new shift rules. You know, grounders up the middle, really grounders of any kind to any side, they're, they're just not really going for hits. And that kind of makes sense, I think, when you look thanks, at... Thanks, Obama. Yeah, thanks, Obama. But, like... <laughs> I, I think it, it makes sense, too, when you when you get into, you know, part of the reason launch angle became such a big thing in baseball was because it is better to hit balls in the air than it is on the ground. You know, a ball on the ground will never turn into a home run. A ball in the air has a chance of turning into a home run, to say nothing of line drives versus ground balls. So I, I do, like, I do imagine this is just kind of a larger part of baseball, which is a ground ball usually doesn't result in a good outcome. I know there's so much said about putting the ball in play and good things will happen, if you hit a weak ground ball, that's like again nine times out of ten, your an out is going to result. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter whether or not there's a shift more times than not. Um, but I think specifically with regards to the rules that have worked, the pitch clock and maybe this just been the take from the start. The pitch clock has been a huge success, mm. and you know I don't think either of us were particularly strongly against or for it during mm. the off season. I don't remember having any particularly spirited debate on that one. But I gotta say, it, it's been a, it's been, an, it's been huge. It has been a, a, I guess it's kind of a pun, a game changer. You know, as as Ben notes in his piece, uh, time of game, the average time of game going into uh, his piece, which came out on Tuesday, two hours and thirty seven minutes. That is an almost twenty five minute drop from the average time of game in twenty twenty two. Like, we are doing sub-three-hour games on the regular. Ben points mm-hmm. out we ha- you have to go back to 1985 to get a shorter average game length. We are, these are the shortest games Major League Baseball played in 40 years. You and know, somehow, something- Oakland A's games are still too long. Look, when you and run by through, too long, I mean, why are they being played at all? Because when you run through, look, when you run through fourteen pitchers a game, um, and this is maybe this could be my my backup take that it's mm. it's really shameful that MLB has done nothing about the Oakland A's situation, particularly what can Rob they do, Manfred. Though? I mean, and this is actually uh, another good a good opportunity to plug something on good old mm. Fangraphs. Uh, Michael Bauman wrote something today about what would it take to for MLB to force an athletic sale. And the basic conclusion he comes to is, barring John Fisher uh, making an alliance with Vladimir Putin, the Oakland A's will will there is just nothing that MLB can do. Yeah, you know, and that and it makes sense I think when you look at you know the recent ownership changes in the NBA and what prompted those: Donald Sterling, Robert Sarver. That took an almost like cartoonish amount of racism, sexism, misogyny. Workplace harassment. Dan Snyder like, in the NFL. Toxic too. culture. Dan Snyder as well in the NFL. Um, Jerry Richardson in the NFL. Like it, it takes you being basically a Southern plantation owner to lose a team. You have to come out and say things that would have gotten you, you know, that would have gotten you like lambasted like a hundred years ago, much less today. You, 
And so long as John Fisher is smart enough, and granted, the jury's still out on that one, he's a very stupid man, but so long as he is smart enough not to say any racial or homophobic slurs near an open or hot mic, MLB probably isn't going to do anything. Because ultimately, again, Rob Manfred's paycheck is more or less signed by the 30 owners of Major League Baseball. He does what is in accordance with their wishes. And so long, again, as John Fisher does not rain ignominy and... Uh, failure down upon the greater brethren, they don't really care where the Oakland A's play. You know, the 29 other owners do not give a... I mean, I should say the 28 other owners. The Giants ownership group obviously cares about where the A's play, and I'm sure they're very, very happy that they plan on leaving the Bay Area, hopefully for good. But otherwise, the rest of the teams, the rest of the owners simply don't give a shit, which in turn means Rob Manfred simply doesn't give a shit, because all Rob Manfred cares about in regards to this is, will the state of Nevada and and Reno and... um sorry, uh, Clark County and the city of Las Vegas pony up the money they're supposed to and build a new stadium with public funds and, and do all this stuff so that the A's don't have to play in uh, an abandoned Walmart septic tank. That the being said, take this week, did you see what, who was it who was sharing like the updates from the city council meeting where they're like, it came out, like somebody said like the, the amount of employees that they'd yes, be bringing that, with that, it. That the A's would somehow <laughs> like, inc- like add 5,400 jobs to the city mm-hmm. by opening. So it's like, is it, it's, there's a line in, um, in a succession episode, one of the ones from this most, this most recent and now final season. Uh, where Kendall Roy says something to the effect of you can like while well, he's putting together a sales pitch for for a ridiculous product that's basically something along the lines of you can make up whatever numbers you want it almost makes you lose faith in capitalism that is essentially what the A's are doing here they are making numbers up because they know or at least they know that the deck is stacked enough in their favor that it simply doesn't matter mm-hmm. and again this is in part because Rob Manfred and the rest of MLB's owners don't care either. You know, they, they, they're not going to stop this because the A's are, are putting phony baloney numbers in their in their in their pitches to the to the Las Vegas City Council or, or to the Nevada state uh, senator, whatever governing bodies they have to appear in to make this farce a reality. They, they just don't care. All John Fisher cares about is how much money will the state of Nevada give me to do this? Does it cross? You know, is it more than X hundred million dollars? Yes. Great. Fine. I don't care anymore. Will they build us a stadium? Yes. Great. I don't care anymore. Just tell whatever lies you need to to get that to happen. Um, but yeah, I guess... So I got two takes here then. One, the mm-hmm. pitch clock has worked and has been great. And, I agree. Uh, the one the one caveat I'll give there, the one little asterisk is... And we're going to have to wait, obviously, to you know for the, full, for the full season to run its course. But whether or not the sped-up tempo of the game is leading to an increase in pitcher injuries. In particular, whether or not mm-hmm. it's leading to an increase in arm injuries. Because we have seen a fair amount of elbow problems this year that does feel, and this is unscientific, I haven't looked at any numbers or anything, it does feel like there is something to, these guys have to throw more in a, in a shorter amount of time, and that is hurting them in the, in the grand scheme of things. But again, you know, hard to tell that without a full season's worth of stats. And again, correlation not equal, does not equal causation, so... You know, we have to wait and see. We have some time on that one. I don't we, think that one's going to be solved anytime soon. No. Um, and also that MLB has basically abandoned the A's and cast them out to sea. And it, it just, I mean, there's no other way to go. It sucks. It's, yeah. and, and one of those things where I've said that I've made this argument before with many things when it comes to MLB, because I think Rob Manfred is a pretty poor steward of the game, that the best interests of baseball are not billionaire fail son systematically neglects his team to the point where it is in the conversation for being the worst team in modern major league history 
also that he can move his team to completely out of the state so someone else can pay for it because he just fundamentally does not care about the fans or about their connection to the team. And I think at the end of the day, that that is a problem because a baseball team should not be the plaything of an idle moron who happens to have a lot of money. A baseball team belongs to its fans. It belongs to the people who go to the games. It belongs to the people who care about that team. And it belong and the Oakland A's belong to the city of Oakland, the people of Oakland, fans in the Bay Area, fans all around the country, whatever weird misguided A's fans exist everywhere else in the world. That's their team. That's not John Fisher's team, and it never should have been. I know. I, I again, I understand that the the you know the the mechanisms of action to get an owner basically to give up their seat or to give up their team, it's more or less impossible unless they commit a literal crime. You know, like the the Wilpons were allowed to run the Mets for who knows how, like for for twenty. Or you years. run out of money. Yeah, or you have to run out like and Frank McCourt style run out yes. of money. Like you have to be an incompetent businessman, even beyond what John Fisher already is. Mm-hmm. Um, Read the Molly Knight book; it's a great book. That kind it, is of a great, it, is, it is a very good book at, 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 a, at a look at that very specific time in Dodgers uh, mm-hmm. franchise history, but. At the same time, like I understand that there are only so many levers that baseball could even pull on if it wanted to, but at the very least, Manfred could maybe stop doing stuff like coming out and saying, this is a great thing for the for the team, that they'll be able to move and get this new stadium. It's not a great thing for the team. It is not a good thing for this for the Oakland A's to be leaving Oakland. You know, it, it is not a good thing that they're going to suck $400 million out of the state of Nevada that could go to things like, I don't know, libraries or roads or, you know, hiring... Uh, more city employees like this is it's just absurd to me and again it it only is because rob manfred cares more about the dollar signs than he does about really anything else here and again it's all part of my my, again a bigger a bigger belief i have that i've expressed quite a few times that uh when it comes to the game of baseball and not not the not the business but the actual sport the actual game rob manfred is ultimately not good for it pitch clock stuff notwithstanding I would agree. Um, speaking of not good, John, uh, why are the Cubs the worst team in the National League now? Can you explain this to me? So it was funny because when I sent you a tweet about that, it, it kind of I, I kind of spent like a minute staring at it, being like, <laughs> "That can't be right." Like the Rockies exist. There's just no way the Cubs are worse than the Rockies, or the Nationals, or the Marlins, or the mm. or the Reds. But I mean, look, and and I don't know if if as of we're recording right now, I think the Cubs won today, or no, the Rays, the Cubs lost today, but I don't know if they're still by record the worst team in the National League by either record or winning percentage. I'm not sure which it is. Which um, doesn't really matter. The it, point it, is that they are now in the conversation yes. for worst team in the National League, which is. <sighs> yeah, I don't look. I don't know how many Cubs fans were optimistic coming into the season that the Cubs would be any good, and I think you and I more or less agree that they would be. Five hundred. We both thought like. They should be around 80 wins, maybe, best case scenario, 81, best I, case scenario. I had scenario. kind of figured them to be 70 somewhere, something. I'd figured them somewhere to be 77 and 80 wins at the end right. of the day. Um, for what it's worth right now, they're on a 436, uh, 436 winning percentage, including today's game. That works out to 71 wins over the over a 90, over 162 game season. So not terribly off what we thought. And it's weird, too, because they're doing this with a run differential plus five. Based purely on Pythagorean record, they should be a game over 500. Mm. amazingly enough they should not only be a game over 500 they should be a game out of first place in the nl central fun fact there's seven games under 500 but only four and a half games out of the first place in the division the nl central shouldn't exist and should be sent back to the paleolithic but um i think with the cubs you know there, there are two things that just stand out when you look at the cubs as to you know what just does not work for them the first is that despite a lineup that has actually a few pretty good hitters in it dansby swanson 
uh, Seiya Suzuki, Cody Bellinger, who looked very rejuvenated, uh, Nico Horner at times. This team really does not hit well in close, late, high leverage, whatever you want to call it, runners scoring position situations, you know, particularly when it comes to high leverage. They're one of the five worst teams in the league, both by uh, weighted on base average and weighted runs created plus. Uh, you look at their specific splits on baseball reference uh, in high leverage situations. They are hitting, and, and as you know, high leverage, you know, high leverage defined as uh, defined by win expectancy. So mm-hmm. basically, the the at bats or plate appearances in which you know the game essentially can swing the most are hitting 229, 309, 332 for a 641 OPS. That is absolutely miserable, you know, and. Look, I don't know that there's anything predictive in that. Similarly, the Cubs are, I think, 4-10, and 10, now I think 4-11 and 11 in one-run games. Just like we talked about with the Marlins recently, who are really good in one-run games, there's no predictive value to that. It doesn't really speak to anything that I think the Cubs in particular could even really address if they wanted to. That having been said, the other big factor for the Cubs being as bad as they are, particularly as bad as they've been in the month of May, uh, where after losing to the Rays today, May 31st, they're going to finish the month at 10-18, and 18, which is flat-out awful. Um, that is a 357 winning percentage, or over the course of a full 162-game season, a 58-win pace. Uh, the bullpen has been absolutely terrible. And mm-hmm. I think that's something in particular that we could have seen coming into the season. This was not going to be a good pitching staff overall. And while Marcus Stroman and Drew Smiley, weirdly, and um, Justin Steele has been a nice breakout, but left today's game uh, with an arm injury, hopefully it's nothing serious. Uh, I think we all kind of knew the pitching staff was going to be a little hit or miss, but I think we all definitely knew the bullpen was going to be a real problem for the Cubs because there was yeah. not really anything in the neighborhood of an impact arm on that team. And I think that continues to be the case now where you look, in, you look at the current uh, that bullpen is currently, cons- is currently constructed. The only two ab- really above average guys who are pitching on a regular basis, I guess, um, or on at least on a big enough sample, Adbert Alzelay and Mark Leiter Jr. That's pretty much it. Otherwise... Mm. Uh, Michael Fulmer has been pretty terrible. Julian Merriweather has been pretty blah. Uh, Javier Assad has been, you know, it, 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 a lot of these are guys where it's, and again, you're not necessarily going to expect any of these guys really to do anything of any real value in the first place. You know, if you were coming to the season thinking a bullpen of Adbert Alzale and Mark Lader Jr. and Javier Assad and Jeremiah Estrada, that's going to get the job done, you're crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, that was just never going to be the case. Um so that doesn't, it doesn't, but I, I think on a, on the whole in general, I'm not really surprised by where the Cubs are because as I've said, I think like 80 million times over the course of the offseason, they didn't really try in the offseason. You know, they brought in Jamison Tyon, uh, they brought in uh, Swanson. Bellinger. They brought in Bell. Oh, they brought in Bellinger. I think there was some, you know, I think Swanson has, pl- has, has turned out particularly well for them, although... Um, his stats are closer to league average than I think you'd like. He's got a 116 OPS plus right now. Uh, compare that to, which is basically, actually, now that I look at it, it's bang on what he did in Atlanta last year. In Atlanta yeah. last year, he hit 277, 329, 447 with a 114 OPS plus. So far for the Cubs, he's hitting 271, 368, 420 with a 116 OPS plus. So he traded some some slugging for some on base, but it more or less evens out in the end. Yeah. But point being, the Cubs didn't really add impact in the course of the offseason. I think, you know, the closest they got is Swanson. And while I know you like Dancy Swanson and I like Dancy Swanson, he was very much the fourth of the four shortstops who were available last uh, in the offseason in terms of just overall value, I would say. And not a guy I think that, you know, was 
you know, not not really a guy who I think, you know, is going to become a franchise cornerstone, I think. For he would have made a lot more sense. Remember how we looked at the Dodgers where it's like, Miguel Roas, what are we doing here? Like, you're just, you need to fill out that last spot. You're getting a little, like, you're right there. You might as well do something. Like, I understand they ended up, but like, he's a cornerstone piece in Chicago at, going into his age 30 season. And he's good to fine. Yeah. But he's just he's miscast in chicago and that was I my worry so there where it's like if you go to the dodgers or you go i mean let's just throw i don't know blue jays yankees astros whoever like he would he would have just been kind of what he was in atlanta which was a really good supporting cast member where he could bat ninth and great yeah. like awesome and if you're on a heater we'll put you at one or two and then no problem. You're totally fine. He didn't really have an ego with that, where he was totally fine batting where he needed to go, like obviously good in the clubhouse. But he is cast as a Trey Turner type savior in Chicago, and it's just that's just yeah. not him. And I will say the the with Swanson too, I think what the Braves uh, what really was valuable to him for the Braves too was even when he wasn't hitting, he was still playing great defense. Right, and that's been the case in in Chicago too. He's been a very very good defender there. He's a 98th percentile on outs above average. But uh, you know you're right. He's not a cornerstone piece. And while I don't necessarily think Chicago brought him in with the belief that oh you're going to be our Trey Turner, the problem is there's no one on that roster. Like if you look at the Cubs lineup just for starters. There's a lot of good, but not great. There's Swanson, mm. there's Ian Happ, there's Bellinger, there's Suzuki, there's, for the moment, Patrick Wisdom. Um, there's, you know, th there, there's a lot of guys there where you're like, oh, these guys are fine, but, you know, there's no one there who's really, you don't have a centerpiece offensive player. You don't have an Aaron Judge. You don't have a Mike Trout. You don't have a Julio Rodriguez, you know? And granted, not every and franchise. Bite. What's a Matt Mervis? <laughs> Uh, Matt Mervis is actually a, a fairly highly rated uh, first base prospect, but, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, that also has not helped, you know, that the guys they've brought up as part of that youth movement, in particular Mervis and uh, Hayden Wisniewski, you know, guys who I think were, you know, Cubs fans pointed to in particular is, well, these are the guys who can come up the season and really make an impact. That has not been the case. Mervis has hit very poorly. Wisniewski pitched okay, then got demoted, is now back up with the team, may take a, a rotation spot again if Justin Steele has to miss any any extended period of time. But I, I guess the, the, the point being, like, the ceiling for this group just was not very high. Mm. You know? And I think that's that you can see that because, again, five guys in this lineup, uh, have an OPS plus of 116 or better. Swanson, Wisdom, Hap, Bellinger, granted who is, is, is still on the injured list, but still has it, and Suzuki. Uh, three guys in the rotation have an ERA plus of 128 or better. Stroman, Steele, and Smiley, although Steele is, more, is likely to miss time at this point. Mm. You know, this is, in a lot of ways, for a lot of those guys, this was kind of best-case scenario as to how they were going to perform. You know, I don't think the Cubs came into the season realistically expecting Marcus Stroman to carry an ERA under three or for uh, Ian Hap, or Ian Hap, sorry, for Patrick Wisdom to be, you know, on pace for, uh, let's see, I'm just curious, he's got 14 home runs so far, to be on pace for essentially uh, 45 home runs. I don't think that keeps up. I don't think that keeps up either. I mean, there's a, the guy's a on base, he's got an on base percentage of 307. It's some real, like, young Jose Bautista throwback hours right now. Um, got a lot of JP in Sibia in the monitors, but... That's the thing. Like those are the guys who are supposed to carry this team, and they're all doing it. Like they're mm. they are not getting subpar, unexpectedly bad production from the guys they needed production from. They're getting subpar bad production 
from the guys you would expect to give them subpar bad production. I think the only the only exception there, maybe not the only exception, but the biggest exception is probably Tyon, who I think the Cubs expect to be much better than what he has been. But he's had some injury problems to deal with, so you know I think you can cut him a little bit of slack on that. You know, it, it's more that the issue has been guys like you know they've given almost a, almost 200 plate appearances to Trey Mancini, who has got an OPS plus of 83. You know, mm-hmm. that they gave 100 plate appearances to Eric Hosmer, who had an OPS plus of 67 before he finally like, got let go. It's 100 plate appearances to Nick Madrigal, who had a 61 OPS plus before he got demoted. You know, it's a constant rotating cast in the outfield of uh, Mike Talkman and Edwin Rios, and, and or not even Edwin Rios, but Nelson Velasquez. Uh, and, you know, now Christopher Morell, who's got off to a very hot start, but has come back to earth because he is, you know, he quite simply does not know when to stop swinging. You know, it's the back of the rotation having no real answers. You know, again, think about where the Cubs would be if Drew Smiley hadn't just suddenly turned into young Drew Smiley again. They'd be even worse than they are right now. And that's not something anyone could have predicted. So I, I don't I think know about you, you. I think this Drew Smiley stuff continues for years. <laughs> I didn't I not realize that Drew Smiley is 34, but somehow only 34. I, I would have guessed he'd been in the league for the last 25 years. Um, I would agree with you. 34 seems young for Drew Smiley. But yeah, I just think overall the ceiling is not that high for this team because there just isn't enough impact talent. And some of that theoretically is going to be coming from the minors, you know, and guys like Pete Crow Armstrong and Ben Brown, um, excuse me, in uh, Wisniewski and Mervis who are already up and have struggled, but you know, the, the, the tools are still there and are good. Uh, and Kevin Alcantara eventually a little further down the road, guys like Caleb Killian or Jordan Wicks. You know, there is, you know, there is talent down there in the system that is that is going to contribute in some way or another. But again, that's not really going to matter if, you know, again, if the Cubs' whole plan is just wait for those guys to percolate up out of the minors and just surround them with enough decent talent that maybe we can get to 80-some wins every now and then, that's not, re- that's not really a, not a viable functioning strategy, especially because... If things don't go right, then all of a sudden you're a 75-win team in last place in the NL Central. And that's really not what the Cubs want to be in particular because, you know, as, as we've seen over the last few years with, you know, when the Cubs have simply stopped trying, Cubs fans are also going to stop trying. They are also going to check out, you know. Chicago is not a city where there are not other things to do, you know. Mm-hmm. And even if the other Chicago baseball team is also a flaming train wreck, maybe that's a little too strong, but still, you know, the you can't really afford to essentially antagonize your fans and push them away and just say, well, we'll give you a mediocre product and you're going to have to pay 50 bucks a ticket to come see it. And more times than not, you're going to leave here pretty pissed off. That's not a winning strategy going forward. You have to invest. You have to try. You know, you have to go into the offseason and aim for higher than Dansby Swanson. You know, there's there's no reason the Cubs couldn't have been part of the Xander Bogarts conversation. There's no reason they couldn't have offered what the Yankees offered to Aaron Judge. You know, there's no reason they couldn't have been in on Carlos Rodon or... You know, there's no reason next offseason that they can't be all in on Shohei Otani. You know, the 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 Ricketts family has more money than God. The Cubs are a money-making enterprise. They are a, a they are a printer of money. You know, especially given all the all the work that's been done in the Wrigleyville area. Because as uh, to to bring up Michael Bauman once again, every baseball team is at this point essentially just a real estate venture operation that happens to play baseball a few times a week. Um, there are many, many revenue avenues and profit avenues for the Cubs to be taking advantage of to make this team better. They didn't do it in the offseason, and I think if you're a Cubs fan, you have to worry that, hey, a lot of this plan seems to be wait for young guys to get here and spend on mid-tier free agents otherwise. That's not exactly, that doesn't get you to the level of an Atlanta team, of the of a Braves, or of the Dodgers, or of the Yankees, or of the, well, I guess the Rays are kind of doing it, but the Rays also have 
you can only be the Rays if you're the Rays. You know what I mean? You have to have an elite player development system in order to do that. And the Cubs don't have that. And so long as they don't have that and continue to operate the way they have otherwise, this is, I think, going to be the result you should expect. You know, I don't think there's any real reason to imagine that the Cubs are suddenly going to get any better, barring, again, 99th percentile outcomes for guys where the 99th percentile outcome isn't even already that great. You know, they're already getting really good outcomes from a lot of the guys they needed. You know, the, the, the problem is there just needs to be more and more impact talent added to that group as is. I also think they're an interesting team now come deadline where clearly they're not a playoff team. And now they have the, like, does Bellinger stay? Do, like, does Wisdom, do they sell high on Wisdom? Do they? I think I think Stroman will be the really interesting one because he's no. already come out and said, I'd rather sign an extension than get traded. And I'm curious if the Cubs are going to have any interest in paying whatever price he's going to be asking for because obviously he's having a great season. But again, he seems Stroman to like is, Chicago too. But Stroman is not a guy with the kind of stuff where I think you feel comfortable giving him a four-plus-year deal as he, yeah. as he ages into his 30s. You know, to say nothing of just how he physically is and how he's since he's on the smaller side, and I know heart, not height, and all that other cheesy nonsense. But uh, this is not a dude I think you feel comfortable investing in long term. And I think especially given how uh, recalcitrant the Cubs have been, have been to invest in anyone long term, I mm. don't really see Stroman as the guy who's going to change that for them. So. That, I think, is going to be fascinating, too, because if if they do decide at any point in the next two months, you know, pack it in, you know, we got guys to move, I do wonder if Stroman becomes the most desirable piece on that roster because of the fact that every contender always needs another arm. And Stroman, again, not a guy I think any team is going to acquire and say, here's our new number one for the playoffs, but definitely a guy who can help you get through the regular season, help you sew up a division title or a wild card spot, and then be a perfectly cromulent, uh, you know, number three starter in a postseason rotation to get you through the lineup two times, maybe try a third, uh, depending on what your situation is. So, yeah, I, I think I think the Cubs are going to be a really interesting deadline team for that in that sense. But again, it is worth mentioning, despite all of this, despite them being seven games under 500, they are only four and a half games out of first place in the in the NL Central. So, nothing nothing is over in that division, as as we've learned with the Cardinals, who went from just looking absolutely dead to. Also being seven games under 500, but with also within four and a half games of, of the division lead, and with playoff odds that are 39. The, the this is fun. The Cardinals have better playoff odds than the Phillies. They have better playoff odds than the Mariners and the Angels. They have better playoff odds than the Guardians. They have better playoff odds than they have almost identical playoff odds to the Orioles. The Orioles, who are 14 games over 500 right now. The Cardinals and Orioles have roughly the same postseason odds. Like. And if you want to have some fun, just go through the Fangraph sortable offensive stats and uh, find how far down you have to scroll for every single instance of where the Cleveland Guardians are offensively. That is a it's very pretty bad, amazing. It's a very bad offensive team, and not I think the so- Rays have hit like seventy more home runs than them to this point. It's something bonkers. Like it might be more than that. It, and I think the Indian or the Indians, the Guardians have only hit like thirty. Maybe it's, it's a really low number, whatever it is. And oh. I can't really say it's all that surprising because this team didn't hit a lot last year. They just ran into a big hot streak toward the end of the season. Again, this is and I think this is also just shows you the dangers of building a team that is so contact oriented, but that doesn't really have a lot of power. You know, when the balls fall in, you, you know, you're 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 rolling all the way to the bank. When the balls don't fall in, you have a worse offense than the A's. That's not really a great place to be. No, no, it is not. Um, they're guarding great baseball, fun baseball from the fans, John Taylor. But um, uh, I, I hated we, that, but it's okay. I know, I had to do it. 
I had to. You started things off with uh, some dad it's, joke advice. So it's I had understandable. To, it's it's fair. It's I had to bring it home. For what it's worth, also, uh, as of right now, I think the by winning percentage, uh, the Rockies have a worse record than the Cubs do. So all all is now right again in the universe. For at least one more day. For at least one more day. Um, until Jordan Beck makes his debut. Uh, John, the Twins. Yes. We don't, the AL Central, like it's May 31st when we're taping this. I think I'm pretty comfortable just locking them in. Like, it's funny too, because the Twins probably going to win the AL Central. Carlos Correa, I think that contract looks scarier and scarier by the day. It's um, not. It's not looking great right now, that's for sure. But they bounce back. I feel like they deserve some credit, uh, John, where we see teams where we just kind of pin... And maybe this is just an AL Central thing, but, you know, they have the season from hell. You think they break through and they're just going to kind of dominate this division year over year for a little bit. And you have, like, you, like I said, that really, really tough season. And they just kind of bounce back. And I don't think a lot of teams do that. You know, when the wheels fall off like that and they don't have that sustainability atop the standings, they don't just do the Cardinals thing where they just hang around year over year and you're just like, they're just going to be in the thick of things for the next decade. Like, they're just going to be fine. Like, the Buxton, like your guy, Byron Buxton, they're going to spend enough. They're going to just have just enough talent. They're well-managed, great GMs, like great front office minds. Rocco Badelli's by all accounts, cool dude. And then you're just like, oh, maybe it's not that stable at the top. And they can really fall off a cliff very easily in a weird way. And then they're back. And I don't really know what to think of the Twins because I don't think they're contenders. I don't think they're bad. I just, I, I think I mean, every team, every single team in the NL East is better than them. <laughs> I think I mean, maybe. They're, they're, an, they're a central team. Right, this the AL just, Central, this, or, yeah, AL East. This, this yeah. is just the reality of being a central division team. You're not a real contender in that sense. Yeah. You know, and that's because, you know, if you're a central, and this seems to have been the, the just kind of roster building maxim for all these central teams, is do just enough to win the division. And then let the chips fall where they may beyond that point. And look, I is it a strategy I would pursue if I were in charge of these teams? No, not at all. Mm. Is it a strategy that has worked for these teams insofar as as it has delivered division titles to them? Sure. I mean, Cleveland won the division last year with an, with a payroll of like seventy million dollars. Like, as far as Cleveland's ownership group is concerned, that is a huge win in terms of uh, in terms of profit margins. But Again, like you said, the ceiling just is kind of capped for you there, though, because you're not a real like the Twins are not real World Series contenders. They're just they're mm. just not. They're not a bad team, like you said. They're they're perfectly fine. But again, they're a 500 team, you know. And granted, they should be a little better than that. Again, going by expected wins and losses and Pythagorean record, uh, they're plus 40 in run differential, which they should be nine games above 500. They should be 32 and 23 as opposed to their current 28 and 27. At the same time, you know, I don't think even if the Twins were 32 and 23, you're necessarily looking at them and going, oh, yeah, that's a real contender. I mean, granted, that puts them way ahead of the pack in the AL Central, where I would like to note the second place team in the AL Central is currently the Detroit Tigers. I think that that says enough on its own about the AL Central and about the Central Divisions in general. But I don't know. It's like it, you can only get so far with a with a, a mindset of let's win the division, you know? And I, and I understand that the Twins are not a franchise that's suddenly going to go out and spend $400 million in the offseason to add, you know, uh, two new pitchers and a franchise shortstop and, like, you know, a bunch of great outfield bats or something. That That's just not them. But it, it does kind of make you wonder, then what is, the, what is the point here? 
I mean, I, which I think is a larger question, a larger, more general question about MLB at large, which is if you're not going to essentially do everything you can to build the best team possible, what are you doing then? And I think maybe sometimes that can be a little bit reductive because the whole point of baseball isn't necessarily wins and losses. You know, there are things to appreciate about baseball players and baseball teams that have nothing to do with where they finish in the standings or who ends up holding up a trophy or whatnot. And I imagine there are a good number of fans who are like, hey, whatever, like, I don't, they win, they great. If they don't win, fine, you know, I'll take it or, I'll take it or leave it one way or the other. All I want is just to watch some entertaining baseball from a group of folks that I can get attached to in some kind of sentimental or emotional fashion or another. That's great. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, I, I like, I like being able to approach games that way sometimes. Or it's just like, you know what, it doesn't really matter who wins or loses this game. But at the same time, if you're a Twins franchise that has, you know, you've never, or you're years and years away from your last World Series win, where we're going on, I think, uh, 30 plus years now since the Twins last won a World Series, um, you're perpetually embarrassed in the postseason. You know, you have this division that is pretty much yours if you basically try, given how mm. no one else is really making any real effort. It just feels so sad to just aim so low in a sense. And so I. You know, it, it, it does kind of bum me out to a certain degree. I, li- I like the Twins. I like them as a team. You know, I think that's a it's a good, for the most part, fan base. It, it is just kind of sad, though, to see, again, just accepting, hey, this is, you're just, you know, finishing first in a bad division. That's good enough for us. You know, that's, you, you got to aim for something more. Even if you think that, you know, the road to the top is very, very difficult because you got teams like the Yankees and the Dodgers that outspend you three to one or whatever it happens to be. I mean, it ultimately just kind of boils down to the the age old internet refrain of "get better." Like, just get get gooder, man. Like, you just gotta do better. Then, like, the, I think the 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 you know the counter is always, well, look at what the Rays do without mm. spending any money at all because they are great at player development and they are a very smart, forward thinking team. And while I've crapped on the Rays many many times for not doing more with the roster that they have and not spending more to take advantage of how good they are at building a roster. At the same time, they are pretty much the prime example of what you can do if you're just, you know, willing to be a little more adventurous, a little more bold. And maybe that's something else for Minnesota just isn't, you know, they're not really that ahead of the times. I can't say for sure. I don't know how the Twins front office works. I don't know where you'd really compare them in terms of, you know, that brain trust versus others. But it, it does just feel like the, t- like the Twins have just kind of settled for what they have. And that is to say they've just settled for, you know, kind of. Uh, advanced mediocrity that is again good enough to win them the central but not really good enough to get them anywhere else go twins twins. um john taylor as we wrap up here tonight the diamondbacks i think they're kind of sneakily the happiest story in the nl this year right i mean they're second in the nl west somehow that's like not just second in the nl west but they're if they win tonight against uh the rockies they're effectively tied atop the nl west with the dodgers who just lost to the nationals they're fun. Like, we were pretty optimistic about them, too, coming into this year. We thought, hey, there's a scenario where things go right, where the Giants don't figure it out. And we thought, like, the Dodgers and the Padres had enough, you know, question marks where you could see one of them having kind of a season from hell start. Yeah. And it's the Padres, it's Padres. <laughs> uh, not the Dodgers, which we should have probably bet on because that's just how things work. The Dodgers just avoid it. No matter how many injuries and everything else that comes their way, it's like they just are proof. They, they, they're just, they're, it doesn't matter. They're full proof. I mean, it's, it's, it's raise West with more money is, yes. is what it is at the end of the day. You know, it's, it's the advantage of having great player development plus the advantage of being able to use money to fix problems that yeah. other teams simply do not do or maybe because either they don't have the money or they choose not to spend it. Can you imagine, imagine a team 
where they are run by super smart people and then they act like they're in the market that they're in. And Can that's you imagine? the Dodgers. That's yeah. basically the Dodgers. What you have, there's a reason and a very, you know, and as, as we've made it clear, a very like obvious reason why the Dodgers, when you when you write the history of baseball in this era, why they're going to go down as the most successful team of this era, you know, regardless of um, how many, you know, championships they do or do not win. And then you look at it, two young guys doing phenomenal. You got Corbin Carroll, great baseball name. Love that name. Having a great year, 200 plate appearances, 140 WRC plus. And then Geraldo Perdamo, 142 plate appearances, 142 WRC plus. Like, you just look at it, their young guys are hitting. Um, you look at guys like Kato Marte, who is just perpetually underrated. Uh, Christian Walker's been good for them. Uh, Dominic Fletcher. Uh, Guriel has been really good for them, which we didn't see probably coming going into this year. Nice Can't bounce back year know. for him. But, you know, this is this is pretty good. They pitch really well. They have a lot of pitchers. Like, Zach Gallen's awesome. Uh, which is good. Uh, One of the more, I line. think, underrated parts of where of why the Diamondbacks are where they are is that Gallon made that leap. Yeah. Um, really funny now, or not funny, but fun, rather. Um, when that Gallon-Jazz-Chisholm trade happened, one of those just ultimate challenge trades that you never see anymore. Really, mm. really fun to see how that has and genuinely worked out for both sides. You know, Jazz yeah. becoming a, a big star in Miami in the face of that franchise gallon becoming the front of the rotation arizona and for a team that really really needed that front of the rotation pitcher you know especially given how badly madison bumgarner flamed out i think they're a playoff team right like i don't see this fumbling this summer i don't see this team really going away i think they're kind of built to last and sustain i think they're a wild card team i think they can be and i, I know by our you know looking at our numbers uh going by our playoff odds we have arizona I mean, we have arizona with a 56 percent chance to make the playoffs right now 10 percent or 11 percent excuse me, to win the division, 45% to clinch the wild card. Um, we have San Diego, admittedly, with better odds, but only slightly. You know, the looking at our projected win-loss totals, we have San Diego finishing 85 and 77. We have San Diego, or sorry, San Diego finishing 85 and 77. We have Arizona finishing 85 and 77. So, you know, their playoff odds are roughly identical. Their division odds are roughly identical. Their wild card odds are roughly identical. I don't really think it would be all that, like, wild for them to be both wild cards. I mean, the only other real wild card contenders you can see right now, assuming that, um, you know, I, for what it's worth, I don't think that any NL Central team besides the division winner makes the playoffs. I'm just going to, that feels like a pretty safe bet to me. You know, you're really only looking at potentially the Mets, the Giants, the Phillies, and maybe the Marlins. Those are your only other real contenders right now when it comes to an NL wild card spot. You know, I don't really believe in the Marlins as a long-term uh, threat, and I don't really think the Giants have all that much going for them. I think they're a pretty mediocre team on the whole, as uh, they just, uh, as Grant Brisby, the great San Francisco Giants writer, points out, over their last 218 games, the Giants are playing 500 ball. Like, this mm. this is just who they are and what they are. Um, you know, they lost today uh, to Pittsburgh to go fall back. to. They're basically just constantly just above or just below 500 and then just slightly oscillating around that point. You know, so I, I think it really then it becomes a four-team race between, again, assuming that uh, the Dodgers and Braves don't collapse, it becomes a four-team race between the Mets, Phillies, Padres, and Diamondbacks. And I like Arizona in that. You know, they've mm. got the number one starter in Gallon. They've got a, re- a pretty good offense right now. They're solid defensively. I think the one thing that they really need to focus on in terms of if they want to make additions to, to bolster their hopes, they need better relievers. That bullpen right now is way too shaky. 
You know, I don't necessarily, I don't think anyone can really feel comfortable in a late inning combo of Andrew Chafin and Kevin Ginkle and Scott McGough. Like that, that's not a group of guys that I, I, I think any manager feels comfortable with getting like locking down leads. Mm. It'd be really interesting to see what Arizona does in terms of uh, maybe adding some bullpen depth. Maybe some of that is taking some of the starters they have who have not really performed very well. Uh, like Ryan Nelson or Dre Jameson or uh, Brandon Fott and moving them to the bullpen and seeing what can come out of that. But, you know, I, I think otherwise I feel pretty good about Arizona. Maybe the other yeah. thing is, you know, given uh, given the composition of that rotation where it's basically Gallon, Merrill Kelly, and then a whole lot of shoulder shrugging, you mm-hmm. know, maybe this is also a team that would be in the market. I and mean, maybe this is a team that looks at Stroman, for example, if he does come mm-hmm. onto the market and say, Hey, why would why not? You know, we're not really getting much of anything out of the rotation from anyone that who isn't Gallon or, or Merrill Kelly right now. Mm. Let's let's go at a starter. Let's go at a starter and a reliever and, and make this better. You know, let's stop relying on Miguel Castro. Which granted, yeah. Miguel Castro has actually been really good this year, but again, not someone you feel too comfortable with. Again, I should know. Yeah. All the all the Diamondbacks relievers have good numbers, but I don't think this is a crew you feel great with. I think you want one more, like especially big strikeout arm in there, mm. uh, pre- preferably from the right side, given that Chafin is a lefty. And I think too, you need one more starter in that group because if this is the if this Diamondback squad um, does make the playoffs, that rotation is currently constructed. I don't think you want Ryan Nelson or Tommy Henry making that game three start, or Zach Davies, you know, or. Or, or anyone like that. I think you want a more a better name than that. And it doesn't have to be an ace. It doesn't have to be you know empty, you know empty out your pockets for uh, you know whatever number one pitcher does come on the trade market. And it'd be actually really interesting to see who that. Given the number of free agent pitchers we're going to see coming up next uh, this offseason, it'd be interesting to see who does end up uh, getting dangled out there on the deadline. It can just be a Stroman level guy. And I, I should say when I say Stroman level, I don't mean like his current level of production, but I just mean generally a, n- a good solid number three starter who can give you six quality innings night or start in and start out and who you feel comfortable about putting on the mound in a playoff game and knowing he's going to give you at least four or five innings before your bullpen has to do the dirty work. So I, I really like where Arizona's at. I think they're in as good a position as any other uh, NL contender. Again, they're really only, I think are four teams in the National League that look like viable wildcard contenders to me, all you got to do is be one of those two. And the longer, the longer too, that the Padres kind of slump drags out, the harder it is going to be for them to get out of that hole. You know, there's, they have some real work to do to claw themselves back into the race. Again, our playoff odds think that they are a better team than they have been. We, you know, we still have them projected again to finish with 85 wins and with a 60% chance of making the playoffs. But one, that's, that's down a lot from where we thought they were preseason, just to give you a uh, quick idea, just go back to our preseason odds. We had the Padres as a 92-win team with 85% chance, with an 85% chance to make the playoffs. So they've shed almost 30 points and seven expected wins or so, or six expected wins rather, off of that total. You know that that's that's not great, but you know again that is they have dug themselves quite a hole to climb out of. And you know for as much as the Dodgers have you know had their ups and downs, they're very clearly the class of that division, and they've already got a seven and a half game lead on San Diego for first place in the NL West. You know that is not going to be an easy thing to erase, especially because this is not a Dodgers team that is playing over its head, or that is something like you know this year's pir- this year's Pirates in April, where you're kind of just wait- waiting for the inevitable regression. The Dodgers, this is just who the Dodgers are. Like you said, even when even when they lose their stars and don't really do anything in on the offseason, they're still this good anyway. So. You know, for San Diego to to steal a Yogi Bearism, it is it might be starting to get late early. You know, they've already they've already lost a lot of buffer they had in terms of make the playoffs, and now they have to contend with a better than expected Arizona team in the process. So, 
it's it's going to be a really interesting race to watch in the for the rest of the NL West is you know Arizona versus San Diego because ultimately I don't think either of them wins the division I think I think the Dodgers are just too strong at this point but you know I'm certainly fascinated to see like what is going to come from either of them especially because like you said I think Arizona has a real shot here and I think they're a legitimately good team yeah I think down the stretch here and when I say down the stretch it's late May but I do think down the stretch uh, the the clash between the Diamondbacks, the Padres, the Giants, the Phillies, and the Mets is going to be fascinating. Uh, it's also to see. it's also worth noting too, and this is a, kind of a, a you know maybe a more minor thing, but when it comes to the the Diamondbacks and the Padres, one really big advantage Arizona has right now a much better and deeper farm system, not yeah. just in terms of who they can bring up to help out at the major league level, but also who they can trade away to add impact pieces. You know. This is not, like, San Diego, A.J. Preller has already leveraged more or less every tradable minor league asset and prospect asset he had. There's really not a whole lot left. Well, you're forgetting one major one. He still has, he still has one major chip to play. I was going to say, which which Tennessee player is in the Padres system? Like, oh, it's who, not that. It's just oh. it's Tatis. Oh, boy. <laughs> the eternal Fernando Tatis debate. I, I, I do think there's a good chance he does get traded. I just don't think it happens till the offseason. I don't think... The Padres yeah. have the stomach for that kind of shakeup, at least midseason. Well, I mean, but... it depends on what's offered, right? Like, everything is context where it's like, if they did get a call and they're like, hey, uh, I don't I don't know who it would be. Like, but there is, I'm I'm just going to go ahead and say, there are teams uh, around baseball um, that would gladly pick up the phone and call and see what, what it costs. And like you said, those kind of Jazz Chisholm, Zach Gallon type trades don't happen very often. But no. what is that? What does that look like? Or even... Um, Luis Arias and uh, why well, am I on his name um, from this offseason with Miami and Minnesota? Uh, oh, oh, Pablo Lopez. Pablo Lopez. Yeah, like those kind of things can still happen. So maybe, uh, obviously, Fernando Tatis would be a super version of that. But like, I don't know. It, AJ Preller, I would never doubt to find a way to do a gigantic shakeup that's <laughs> that uh, still somehow nets uh, the Padres with a win now piece that gets them in the playoffs and just sees what happened. I, I just hate it because Preller deserves credit, man. I love no, the guy. No, he definitely deserves credit. I, I've, you know, no matter what happens with this Padres season, for as, and admittedly for as funny as it would be if the Padres just whiff on the playoffs entirely after doing all of this, like, you have to give credit to Preller and Padres ownership for making the effort. You know, yeah. they really, they have really tried. They have expended every last possible, um, you know, chip in this process. But I think, again, that's the thing. Like, Arizona, if it comes down to a tight deadline... And, you know, it's Arizona and San Diego in, in, a, in a bidding war. Arizona has more pieces to offer. They just mm-hmm. straight up do. And that, I think, could be a deciding factor. I mean, you never know, but I think there's a, you know, there's a good-sized chance that Arizona's farm system advantage does come to play in some way or another that puts them ahead of the Padres. Because, again, with that, with that Juan Soto trade, uh, San Diego more or less gave up what it had left in terms of uh, big names in the hopper. You know, there's... There's not really a whole lot more for them to offer. So that'll be another really interesting thing, to, too, to watch going down the stretch. John Taylor, what can the good folks check out from you and the team over at Fangraphs.com this week? Uh, yet another top prospect list came out today, May 31st. The top 29 prospects in the Miami Marlins system, led by Yuri Perez, the very tall hard thrower now up in the Marlins system. Unsurprisingly, it's a lot of starting pitching for the Marlins and not a whole lot of hitters, um, but... Hey, that's been the Marlins ethos for quite a million, quite a few years now, a million years at least. Uh, I recommend Michael Bauman's piece on MLB forcing an athletic sale just to get a sense of, you know, especially if you're an angry A's fan, to get a sense of, well, yeah, there's really not a whole lot that can be done. 
Uh, we've also just been kind of doing some league-wide check-ins now as the calendar flips to June. One I recommend is Jay Jaffe writing about home run rates, uh, focused on Aaron Judge and Peter Alonzo. Peter Alonzo, that makes him sound so serious. Big Pete Alonzo. <laughs> the home run uh, king. The home run king, the two home run kings of New York, mm-hmm. uh, and how home God, runs... God, that's weird. Now, when weird, you really think it? about it, they really are just going to keep leading the league in home runs every single year for the rest of their primes. Um, a good piece there on the home run rate and what it looks like, especially in comparison to the recent uh, juice ball years. And uh, otherwise, yeah, I mean, we, we're still doing the same stuff over Fangraphs. We're going to keep having more prospect lists. We're, we're churning those out now. Uh, we got Dan Zimborski doing a Zips stats update for a third of, through a third of the season, kind of give a projection going forward. We've got another top prospect list coming out at the end of the week, the Minnesota Twins top prospect list. So if you're a Twins fan who is annoyed at our constant dismissal of the Twins and wants to be annoyed about something else, go read that so you can complain about, you know, who even are good? Jordan Belezovich not being <laughs> Balzovich. Bele- mm. Why did I pick the guy with the na- the last name? This is the only guy who came to mind, and it had to be the guy with the last name where I cannot remember where the Z goes because mm. it has to be some fiendishly complicated Eastern European derivative name. Um, we'll also have something I think uh, on, and this is kind of more you know in in, in immediate news on the ongoing Diamond Sports Bally Sports Network. Uh, collapse with the Padres uh, now no longer being on Bally Sports. MLB is now uh, broadcasting all their games, which is honestly kind of fascinating to me. Ben Clemens is going to look in on that and kind of try to make sense of it as as Diamond Sports slash Bally Sports continues to circle the drain and what impact or effect that could have going on for the rest of the season, not just for the Padres, but also for all the other teams who are part of that Diamond Bally window or under that Diamond Bally umbrella, rather. So yeah, come on over to Fangraphs, become a member, $5 a month, $60 a year, gets you ad-free browsing, plus a whole lot of other cool things. Check out our store, um, you know, we got some new t-shirts on sale for the t-shirt minded among you. Yeah, Fangraphs, it's it's where all the good baseball stuff is to be do- doing. It's good baseball to be done, Fangraphs. I love these that are, sign These off. are getting more natural every week, I swear. I know. They really are. John Taylor, go subscribe. Bangraphs.com. Always a pleasure, my friend. And I will talk to you next week. Sounds good. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 